0: If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke today. Luke uh, chapter 23 is where we're going to be at. Luke 23, verses 50 to 56. Luke 23, 50 to 56. And by the way, just FYI, for those of you who have uh, kind of been wondering what series I'm going to be preaching through next, I've been kind of, I'm pretty much now. about 90% sure, I'm planning to preach through the the book of Numbers, the num- book of Numbers. So if you want to just start reading through that or kind of studying it on your own, you, you're welcome to do that. We'll, we'll probably hit it in about two or three months. I think I'm going I'm going to take a, a small break in between uh, after Luke to go through a series, just a short series through the Psalm 119, and then we're going to come and start with Numbers. So. Uh, I think that that book has a lot to say to us as as uh, um, as, a, as the people of God. Uh, just some of the things that they experienced as they wandered through the wilderness, and and um, and for us too as we uh, wander this uh, this wilderness here on earth. All right, uh, <clears throat> let us uh, let us pray, Heavenly Father. We praise you and thank you for your love. How great is your love uh, towards us in Christ Jesus? And uh, we may not fully understand your love, but Lord, what we do grasp of it, uh, we know it has it is immense, it is immeasurable. Even we thank you, Lord, that it's by your love by which we are saved. It's by your love that you sent your Son to die in our place. And Father, it is because of your love that we desire to love you in response. Lord, help us to respond, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us to love one another as ourselves. And Lord, may you cause uh, the, the, the love which you have for us to be manifest in our lives so that we would be a people who are known for love for one another, known as your disciples, Christ's disciples. God, we pray that your spirit would teach us now and lead us into your truth. And help us to uh, be further encouraged by the, the reality and the truths of that which your scripture speaks about. And God, we thank you for, your, uh, for this gospel truths that we look at today. And pray that if anyone here or anyone watching us online does not yet know Jesus Christ, we pray for their salvation. We pray that you would open up their eyes and their hearts uh, to understand the truths of the gospel. And we pray that your word would encourage uh, even those of us who may be experiencing doubt and uh, discouragement. Lord, with these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On our recent Easter Sunday, maybe some of you, those of you who are with us, you may recall that we uh, studied 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And we studied about what it taught us about the gospel and particularly that which this gospel message by which we are all saved. And if you recall, the Apostle Paul had summarized the gospel for us in uh, those 11 verses, or really even the first few verses. He has summarized the gospel with two essential truths. And hopefully you remember what those two essential truths are. What are the essential truths of the gospel? That is Christ's death. And Christ's resurrection. His death and resurrection are what is the essential truths of the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the the gospel by which the Corinthians had received and by which they were saved. And the reality and the truth of Christ's death and resurrection are attested to us by four different witnesses that God has provided. Those witnesses, of course, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of whom have in their respective gospels written and attested to the reality of Christ's death on the cross and Christ's resurrection from the dead. That Jesus Christ died is a historically certain event. It's uh, not very many events, and you think about, uh, go back to 2,000 years ago, can you really be historically certain about? But the death Of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth, is one of those few uh, historical truths that you can be certain about. Not only do the gospel writers attest to it, but we also can have it corroborated by extra biblical testimony. Uh, these come from various sources and I want to list for you, a couple of them for you just as a kind of apologetic resource, kind of encouragement of your faith uh, just as you know that uh, the things that the scriptures teach really do are, if they're, they're written by the God of truth then they're going to be consistent with historical data that we find in our world. First of course are the sources that, uh, of, that testify to the death of Christ from the Jew- Jewish background, unbelieving Jewish background. Of course, the most well-known, many of you already know, was the historian named Josephus. He lived from .AD. 37 to 100, and he wrote in what is known as his "The Antiquities of the Jews," as his historical work, of how Pilate had condemned Jesus to the cross. Uh, in addition, another Jewish background work and, and is it the Talmud itself. The Talmud is, uh, was finalized around 400 A.D., but it was actually a compilation of various Jewish uh, documents up to that time, and so much of the writing is of an earlier date. And in the Talmud, we find that though the Talmud is hostile to Christ, it does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, it does speak and makes reference to the death of Jesus the Nazarene, who was hanged on the eve of the Passover. Now, there's those, these are the witnesses uh, among just two of the witnesses from a Jewish background. Secondly, there were attestations to the death of Christ from Gentile background, from Roman background, Greek backgrounds. The Roman historian Tacitus, who lived around A.D. 56 to 120, so that's the first, second century, he writes in his Annals, his, it's called the Annals, uh, that Christ was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Then uh, there's an interesting one. Uh, uh, there's a Syrian... Stoic philosopher, Syria uh, being in northern Africa, by the name of uh, Mara Bar-Serapian. Mara Bar-Serapian, son of Serapian, basically, who in his letter, he was, he was imprisoned, and he wrote a letter to his son. This was written about, uh, scholars believe, around 73 AD. So it's, this, is, this is pretty amazing. This is really early. This is not just only a deck. Even before the gospel was completed, this guy's writing about it. And he refers to how the Jews killed their king, and, and they received the the just punishment of that by well that they're being scattered and uh, scattered abroad and he, he was an unbeliever too so both these guys were unbelievers referring to the death of jesus and then thirdly of course we find a, a, um, a greater amount of body of work of attestations of the death of christ from from christian sources from uh People who were Christians. There was one named Clement of Rome who lived AD 35 to 99, a contemporary of many of the apostles. He would have even lived during Jesus' day. But he was a bishop in Rome. He, so he's a Roman. Uh, he's, he lived in Rome. And he eventually became a martyr of the church. And he wrote of the death of Christ uh, for the iniquities of his people in his writings. Uh, uh, he, one, uh there's a, one additional particular interesting witness is that of a guy named Sextus Julius Africanus. That's a cool name. You know, we don't call we don't name kids that these days. My name is Sextus Julius Africanus. You know, that's cool. But anyways, he was a Christian historian written, uh, and he writes in A.D. 160 to 240. So that's second and third century. But in his histor- history of the world, he refers, he interacts with another older historical work uh, by a man named Thallus. And scholars believe that Thallus wrote his history around 50 A.D., 50 A.D. So he's interacting with this historical work. This is earlier than Josephus, even. Uh, so this is probably the earliest, he's referencing the earliest historical work that describes the, uh, the, uh, the, uh the uh, events surrounding the death of Christ. And Africanus basically argues against Thallus because Thallus had basically came with the explanation that the that the darkness surrounding Jesus's death was actually a solar eclipse. But of course, uh, Africanus uh, he he disagrees and he argues that it can't take place. We looked at this last week. Uh, you know, it can't happen because uh, the Passover happened on a full moon and you can't have a uh, a solar eclipse on a full moon. Anyways, so these Jewish, Gentile, as well as Christian sources. They're all extra biblical sources. They're not in the scriptures itself, but they're extra biblical sources. And this is really cool because you know that's how, how we know things are true. We look at historical sources, and you say, "What do the historical sources say?" And especially when we talk about ancient sources, the fact that there's if you have two people saying the same thing, that's a pretty certain that that most likely that event likely happened. But when you have multiple sources from multiple different uh, geographic as well as uh, societal backgrounds. It even more confirms the likelihood, the, the great likelihood, the certainty of these events. This event happened, that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he was crucified. He did die. These, are, these corroborate the testimony of the gospel authors themselves, that Christ did die. Before the New Testament saints, uh, those who lived during the New Testament era, those who were before the completion of uh, the canon, they did not per- those who particularly did not personally witness his death and resurrection, the testimony of the eyewitnesses were all that they needed to believe. But they too, according to Paul, had a corroborating evidence. Not the extrabilical testimony, but what corroborated the, the testimony of the apostles that Christ died and rose again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 that their evidence for the death of Christ was the fact that he was buried. Just as Christ's resurrection was attested by Christ's appearance to many, so Christ's death was attested by Christ's burial. I, I live uh, down in San Bruno where there's the National Cemetery and you know I, I can drive by, I drive by all the time and I can't help but notice all the gravestones and you'll see them. And every single gravestone, every place where I see uh, a gravestone tells me that someone died. That that name, of the person on that gravestone was dead. And so in a similar way, when we, when we learn about the burial of Christ, we, have a, or we are, at least from common sense, that Jesus Christ died, did die. That Christ was buried is evidence that corroborates basically Christ's death. And all four Gospels significantly include Christ's burial as proof of the certainty of his death. In Matthew 27, 57, 60. Mark 15, 42 to 46. John 19, 31 to 42. And John's is probably the most interesting. He has the most detail. And so you can look there, and, and along with our text today, and find, basically, the record, the testimony of Christ's burial. Today, we will all basically examine Luke's record of Christ's burial. Jesus' burial by his disciples basically testifies to the reality of his death. And though uh, through our study, I hope to encourage followers of Christ. I know that as followers of Christ, especially, uh, we may go through periods of doubt, wondering, "Is this all true?" A lot of times, it's, it's we, we just come doubt because a lot of times it's just an emotional type of doubt. It's not even like you got some new evidence and you start to doubt. You know, oh, I, oh, they found something. They found a, a body in somebody's tomb. And then, you know, oh, that. So, so, usually, it's just kind of like, oh, I just feel like I wonder. Is it really all true? You know, it's just kind of, it's a feeling that you had, not based upon any evidence whatsoever. And that's, and that happens. It can happen throughout the Christian life. These thoughts come to mind. And I want to encourage you, particularly this morning, for those who may be experiencing those kinds of doubts, or when you experience those kinds of doubts, that Jesus really did die. That you will understand that not only the scriptures teach it, but all the testimony from history attests to it. And the question really we should be asking is, why did he die? If he did die, why did he die? And then how will you respond to that? And did he, he, because he died for your sins. Well, uh, I know this is a long introduction, but uh, you know, uh, it's, I just thought I would want to kind of give you some of this apologetic background, just to encourage your faith, It's kind of needs, kind of church history type stuff uh, that's a blessing to, um, well, to, to some of us. In the previous passage, Luke had basically written of how Jesus, though innocent, was taken away, led away to be crucified on the cross. Uh, In this passage, we see how Jesus, in that passage, we saw how Jesus was in control. And as he warned the daughters of Jerusalem, he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. He saved a dying thief, and and he then died willingly for our sins. And in his death and burial, what we notice strikingly absent from these two scenes are the apostles themselves. They're kind of they who had basically been with Jesus the whole time of his three years ministry are now in his death and his burial, basically almost invisible. And of course, we know that they're afraid. They who had been closely, most closely associated with Jesus, were probably had the greatest amount of fear. Instead, today's passage we find two unexpected groups. Two unexpected groups of uh, those who of disciples of Jesus, who are involved in his burial, and their actions. While their actions reveal faithful devotion to Jesus, they also reflect no indication, no expectation that the Christ would bodily rise from the grave. They treat him in all, in all their activity basically as someone who is dead and someone who is going to stay dead. And so that's very significant uh, as a testimony to the truth of Christ's death. The activity, and we're going to look at it as an outline today, simply a two-point outline, the activity of two unexpected groups of Jesus' disciples in his burial testify to the reality of his death, and so that's what we look at today. Uh, these activity, these two groups, and hopefully you can be encouraged. Anyways, the first uh, activity uh, group uh, that we look at the activity is the activity of a religious leader. Uh, <clears throat> when we, uh, you could actually put down religious leaders. The text only focuses on one particular religious leader, but we're going to find that there was actually two religious leaders involved. Anyways, let's look at verses fifty to fifty-three of uh, of our text. Luke 23, verse 50 to 53. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Uh, I'll make reference to some of the many of the parallel accounts. And John's parallel account uh, in John 19.39 revealed that it's not just Joseph of Arimathea alone who comes this, this evening, but it's also a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who approached Jesus in the dead of night in uh, John, chapter, uh, John chapter 4, had, had, uh, went, was also here to bury Jesus' body. And so we learn that the religious leaders are involved in the burial of Jesus. And that's very striking. That's unexpected because, well, the religious leaders as a whole basically had sought to kill Jesus. Luke, uh, just like Matthew and Mark, chooses to focus only on Joseph, though, and John alone who tells us that Nicodemus was there. And although Jesus' most active enemies are, of course, the religious leaders, uh, they were the chief priests, the scribes, etc., they were the enemies of Jesus, um, we, Luke wants his reader to understand that not all religious leaders... We're enemies of Jesus. You know, at that time, sometimes we, we might think of people as their enemies, these are the enemies, and so we think of them all kind of just broadly, uh, painting with a broad brush, that they're all like that, but not, all, not everyone is evil, uh, even if uh, we may think of a certain group as being uh, enemies of Jesus. And here, even among the religious leaders, there was some who were part of the faithful remnant of Jews, that, that God would always prefer, had always preserved those who had faith in Christ as the Messiah. And Joseph is one of them. His hometown, we learn, is Arimathea. Arimathea. So uh, there are some disagreements about exactly where that is. But uh, many believe that it's a city that's just just north of Jerusalem. And so it was close enough to Jerusalem. That's why he could serve on the council, the Sanhedrin. And we are introduced to his character, this man's Joseph Arimathea's character in verses 50 to 51. What kind of man was he? First of all, we learned that he was a member of the council, and that is, he was the member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. He was the, the ruling body of Israel was not just a religious, le- uh, a religious leadership, but he was a political leader too. It functioned as a political leadership. And we learned uh, that even though he was a member of the council, he was a good and righteous man, a good and righteous man. And that's kind of surprising. It's kind of like, if I were to kind of talk about it today, it's like, uh, he was a politician, And he was a good and righteous man, you know. Uh, It's sort of like in our culture, we think, oh man, those law politicians, they have to make compromises. You know, they're all, you know, they they probably uh, have not acted ethically. And I know we can't paint them all with a broad brush, but that's how we classify them. And to hear that this council member, this former member of the Sanhedrin, is a righteous and good man, that kind of stands out. It sticks out for us, to us. We don't, uh, we basically don't expect this kind of man to exist. But of course, there's always exceptions. Luke wants us to remember that. Luke wants us to know that. And Joseph was such an exception. Uh, We see Joseph's righteousness that he was a good and righteous man reflected in his activity, in the things that he did. Uh, First of all, it reflects in his attitude toward Jesus. Now he was one who had basically not consented to the plan of the of the Sanhedrin. He had not agreed to their council's plan and, and actions regarding Jesus. Remember, they were the ones who wanted to kill Jesus. They were the ones who had him arrested in the middle of the night. They would arrange to, with uh, Judas Iscariot to basically betray Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. They were the ones who basically during Jesus' trials looked for, for witness false witnesses to come and accuse Jesus of some crime. They were the ones who drummed up the false charges which they brought against Jesus in order, uh, before Pilate in order to have him executed. And even when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, it was this group, the council, that led the crowds to ask for Barabbas, a thief, a murdering thief, and to instead call and cry out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Such was their wicked plan, and we learned that Joseph and Arimathea did not agree to this plan. He was, just, he, he, he was righteous, he was looking, and, Jesus and Judah, Joseph did not consent to any of it. We learn much more from John's Gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple, he was a follower of Jesus, but he was a secret one because of fear, out of fear for uh, the Jewish leadership, out of Israel for the the leaders. Like uh, basically righteous and devout, Simeon, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Joseph was one who, uh, who was looking uh, for the Messiah. Uh, Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. Here, Joseph is known as one who was looking for the kingdom of God. He is looking with, with eyes of faith for the promises of God to fulfill in the sending of his Christ, his king, to rule over Israel and to bring about the, the comfort, the peace, the salvation that he had promised to all of Israel. And when, and somewhere along the way throughout Jesus, through Jesus' earthly ministry, when Joseph Arimathea had heard Jesus' teaching, and Jesus, what was the message, main message of Jesus? It was the gospel of the kingdom of God. How one can be entered into the, and have a hope in the kingdom of a part in the kingdom of God. And so he had heard about Jesus preaching the gospel, and he became somewhere along the way a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Of course, uh, or not of course, but Understandably, he was since he was a man of wealth, a man of prestige. He had a lot more to lose. You know, when you follow Jesus, you're gonna have risk losing things. Uh, you will deny yourself. That's part of taking up your cross, deny yourself. And he had a lot to lose being a particularly a member of the council. And so that's why he became a secret disciple. And so he was found it difficult, and we understand this. Uh, you know, I don't, you know uh, I've been talking with uh, uh, actually one of our missionaries recently. Um, I was reminded how many of the people, many Christians who come out of Muslim backgrounds, you know, right? They, when they come to Jesus, uh, they are, they don't necessarily start telling their family member that they, that they came to Christ because they know that there's a cost to that and uh they might lose their might be kicked out of their families because they are following jesus and there's a there's a process and we, we would you know if we were in those situations we uh we'd understand that there's a risk and we we pray that they will one day uh, uh take a stand for jesus but we understand that there's a there's the fear and, of being rejected of losing things and and that 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 will we pray that uh those who belong to christ will grow in that area and we support, uh, want to encourage uh, and pray for those, um, those who risk much to follow Jesus. Joseph Arimathea was one who, like a rich man, difficult to enter the kingdom of God, he risked much to follow Jesus. And he was afraid that he would lose the things that, that he had. But now uh, that Jesus was dead, by the actions of his fellow council members, the, the people he basically went to work with every day, Joseph evidently decided that he would no longer be a secret disciple. He came to understand that the way of his fellow religious leaders and the way of Jesus they had to separate. He could not continue walking this path and also follow Jesus. And he chose to follow Jesus. No longer would he live in fear. He failed in that he didn't wasn't able to help Jesus in his trials or he didn't help Jesus in his trials. But at least in his mind, he was thinking that he will help Jesus in his burial. And so we see his actions reflected. This reflected in his actions in verse 52 to 53. And so he, this man, this man, Joseph Arimathea, this righteous and good man, a member of the council, now went to Pilate. He went to Pontius Pilate, the governor of the, of the region, and tells us that uh, he went then and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 54 tells us that it was the preparation day, by the way. And uh, this was the day before the Sabbath. It was about to begin. And by the way, it's also the day before the Passover. It was about to be celebrated in all Judea. And Jesus Jesus had hung on the cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. when he had breathed his last. And the Sabbath begins officially at 6 p.m. And no more work could be done at that point. And so from Jesus' death to the beginning of the Sabbath is only about... Three hours, and that's all he had time. Can you imagine trying to prepare a burial for someone in three hours today? You can't. It's not even possible. Okay, but back then they it was hard. It was hard as well. But Joseph of Arimathea makes it happen. He goes and asks Pilate for the body, and uh, <clears throat> and he wants to bury Jesus before the sun sets. It was likely that uh, this, was, uh, this was also a desire uh, of Jewish people that those who were basically crucified would be buried before the sun sets because it's a reflection of uh, the law. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22 to 23 required that anyone put to death by hanging on a tree must be buried on that same day so that the land would not be defiled. So even uh, we see in John's Gospel, for instance, that the religious leaders uh, basically wanted to bury the dead people. They they asked basically for the Roman soldiers to to quicken the deaths of these crucified so they can put them uh, in in, uh, their graves. Um, Jesus was now dead and, and Joseph goes and asks for the body. In honor of Jesus, as well as in obedience to God's word, God's law, Joseph takes action to bury Jesus. He courageously approaches Pilate for the body of Jesus. He does so to do so is to basically publicly make known that he he is somehow sympathetic to Jesus, at least. Both Mark and John tell us that Pilate basically has a centurion confirm that Jesus is dead um, before giving permission. Uh, they usually, to quicken the death, they'll, they'll, break their ne- they'll break their knees, so their legs, so that basically they collapse and they suffocate to death. When they arrived to Jesus, he was already dead. And they even confirmed by piercing a, si- a spear into his side, and blood and water came out, and that's uh, all John's gospel. Joseph, uh, <clears throat> Joseph takes the body of Jesus down from the cross, it says. And then he wraps Jesus' body in a linen cloth, cloth, uh, uh, then uh, normally in those days, uh, commonly criminals, uh, like those crucified, would be buried in basically shallow graves. And no one normally would even bother to bury them. Uh, they'd be just cast in some uh, shallow grave somewhere. But Joseph does not allow this to happen. Instead, he lays Jesus in his own tomb. We learn that it's actually a brand new tomb. It's one that, he had just, that they had just cut into the rock that no one had ever lain into. This was a, a, a plot, basically, a, lot that, uh, a a tomb that he had paid money for to, to hew out of the rock, uh, quite ex- very extensive labor. And if you've ever had to prepare for your own burial, you buy property these days for such things. It's quite expensive. Uh, you, normally, it's, hard to, it's difficult to afford this. But he takes Jesus and he lays Jesus in his own tomb. There's no time to prepare another tomb. And what's significant is that since tombs were limited basically to the burial of usually one family, Joseph was basically giving up his new tomb. He was sacrificing his new tomb for the Lord. He gave it up for the Lord. He lays Jesus in this tomb. And by doing so, soon everyone would know that, the, that this Joseph Arimathea had laid Jesus in this very tomb, his own tomb. Therefore, he must be somehow a... Sympathetic, if not a follower of Jesus, and they would understand where he stood with regard to Jesus. In John's Gospel, in fact, we learn that Nicodemus also participates, and Nicodemus participates by bringing. So, while Josephus offers up his tomb, Nicodemus offers up spices, myrrh, and aloes—a mixture of those things. And it's and we learn from John's Gospel that it was he brought so many spices to basically anoint the body of Jesus that it was worth it was a weight of a hundred pounds. That's uh, just think about a big rice sack, that much spices. Basically, cover all that's a lot of spices, okay? Uh, that's, and it was basically, uh, scholars say that, that was, that's, that's a mountain that was reserved for kings. And certainly, Jesus is the king of kings, worth uh, all these spices that Nicodemus sacrificially brought for Jesus. To wrap Joseph, up. and it wasn't that they were trying uh, to necessarily to uh, embalm Jesus. It was just simply a way to kind of reduce the odor, maybe slow down the decay, uh, and but it was something that culturally was done. With the body laid in the tomb, Joseph and Nicodemus then. Uh, and basically, there was a left, the a big stones rolled about. We look in the parallel accounts, other accounts that basically Pilate has, uh, they, they put Roman guards, centurions, uh, guarding the tomb from that point on. But they then go home to mourn. They will return home to mourn the death of Jesus. And significantly, they mourn the death of Jesus, even as the nation upon that night celebrate the Passover meal. Think about that. The Passover lamb died and was buried. And the nation goes on to celebrate the Passover meal. There are three things to draw out from Joseph's actions. I think that can kind of just encourage us. First of all, what he did was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of prophecy concerning Jesus' death. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, concerning the suffering servant, Isaiah wrote these words, that his grave was assigned with wicked men Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Remember, this was written 700 years before the Christ, Isaiah's words. And yet he attests to the fact that the Messiah, the servant of God, would, be, would have his grave signed with wicked men, but yet he's with a rich man in his death. Jesus died alongside wicked men. And if nothing else happened, he would have been thrown into a, a criminal's grave, a shallow grave like these two thieves. But because of Joseph's actions, Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph did so because he knew that Jesus had committed no sin. He had done no violence. He knew that there was no deceit in, from Jesus' lips. He knew that Jesus was sinless, he had proved himself to be the sinless, a sinless man. And the fulfillment of this prophecy basically goes further to confirm that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That, that, G, that Joseph is involved in the burial of Jesus. Jesus tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Second thing to kind of just draw out from this, by burying Jesus, we note that Joseph becomes ceremonially unclean. He has to bear, think about it. it doesn't, it's not mentioned in the text, but he touched a dead body. And according to the law, Numbers 19.11, anyone who touches a corpse is unclean for seven days. And they will remain unclean until they go through a purification, uh, uh, a purification rite. And, they, and during their, time, their week of uncleanness, they were not allowed to, at least in Numbers, not allowed to be involved in the worship in the tabernacle. We can surmise that that kind of extended to the worship in the temple as well. And so therefore, this whole week, from that point on, Joseph, as well as Nicodemus, could not participate in any of the worship of Israel. They could not involve in temple worship. And they they had to avoid other people, lest their uncleanness, in a sense, uh, uh, ceremony defile other people that were near them. And so, consider then that this is the night before the Passover. Therefore, we can conclude or deduce that Joseph, both Joseph and Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, did not spend that evening celebrating the Passover with their families. Their families might have continued, but they were unclean. They had to separate themselves in order not to devolve their family. And these were devout men, so they weren't going to be, so all oh, wink-wink at the law and just gonna have a dinner anyways. <laughs> anyways, I won't go there. Uh, Jesus, and we learn that for Nicodemus and for Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus is worth the sacrifice. This devotion to Jesus would separate him from his family even, would separate him from his fellow uh, uh, council members. It would set him apart. His identification with Jesus through through this burial was basically the beginning of that denial of himself that would be necessary for Joseph as one who followed Jesus. You have to take, Jesus says, anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's what we see Joseph doing. And that's encouraging for us. Just Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Thirdly, we draw out that Joseph's actions, basically to wrap up Jesus, anoint Jesus, even bury Jesus in his tomb, in his own tomb, indicates that Jesus is dead. Nothing was going, and nothing as far is going to change that, at least by the expectations of Joseph and, and Nicodemus. There is no indication that he expects Jesus to rise from the dead. And what's more, we already mentioned that Jesus' death was confirmed by his enemies, by the Sanhedrin, by the Roman authorities, by, Pilate, by the Roman centurion, and by Pilate himself, before they would release the body of Jesus to Joseph. Jesus did die in a historically certain event, not only because the scriptures tell us, or because the scriptures tell us, but we see it by, his action, by Joseph's actions. Although Joseph had not expected Jesus to be resurrected from uh, the dead, it is interesting to observe that basically Joseph's life was changed. It was transformed because of the death of Jesus. We're not completely sure, because just, there's just a lot of um, blank space in there, we're not really completely sure of what he understood of Jesus at this point. Did he understand that Jesus died as an atonement for his sins? But nevertheless, we find that Joseph's life is changed from this point on. He no longer remains a secret disciple, but a, a public one. He honored Jesus by burying his body in his own tomb. He sacrifices for Jesus. It was, jo- if, and if Joseph's, and we think about it, if Joseph's life was changed because Jesus died, how much more then should our lives be changed because Jesus died? And we know from the benefit of scriptures that Jesus didn't just die, but he died for our sins. My sins and yours. And of course, on top of that, we'll get there, but he rose from the dead as well. These are life-transforming truths, transforming how we live. And think about later on, too. We're going to look at this from a apology standpoint. The apostles at this point are, are missing. They're afraid. But when they know, when they learn of Christ's death and resurrection, that will transform their life. They will turn, be, be transformed from fearful men to fearless men who give their lives for Jesus Christ. How does Christ's death transform your life, is the question. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus were not the only ones to be involved in Jesus' burial. We see on this day, we also learn from uh, a second, we see a second unexpected group involved in Jesus' burial. We see their activity in verse 54 to 56. And this is the activity of the group that is known as the women, the women. Uh, well, Let's read 54 to 56 It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin uh, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment uh, We had basically already noted by verse 54 that the Sabbath was approaching There was only uh, basically three hours not much time left to bury Jesus before they had to stop all work And and so, the activity of Joseph and Nicodemus did not go unobserved. We learn that a group of women here, according to the text, followed after Joseph. Who were these women? Who are they? Well, uh, these were basically women who had, it tells us that they had come with Jesus out of Galilee. It's kind of neat uh, when you think study Luke's gospel. He probably more more than the other gospel writers emphasizes the activity of, of women disciples of Jesus. Uh, just maybe because his, of his Greek background himself, uh, or and he's just more aware. He talks about it and he, he alludes to it. He's not uh, he uh, he he mentions them much in his in his uh, gospel. We learned already back in Luke chapter eight verses one to three that when Jesus went from village to village. Uh, there was, he, was always a, he was not only accompanied by his apostles, the, the twelve, but also was accompanied by a group of women. These women who had been basically healed by Jesus, ca- had demons cast out of them, and they were out of gratitude, out of love. They, they followed Jesus wherever he went, and they supported his ministry by their, with their own means. Um, the, we, at that point, we were introduced to individuals like Mary Magdalene. We were introduced to Joanna the wife of uh, Herod's steward, among others. In fact, uh, later on in uh, Luke 24, when, in this text about the resurrection, verse 10, we'll find that these two women were among these women that were here uh, observing Joseph, and, Joseph of Arimathea. Out of gratefulness, these women had followed Jesus, had supported Jesus, his ministry, uh, generously and sacrificially. These were faithful followers of Jesus. They not only were experienced physical, uh, usually physical or spiritual healing, having uh, demons cast out of them, but they had heard his truth. They had heard the, the message of the kingdom, and they had believed and followed him. They were devoted followers of Christ, but their hopes that Jesus was the Christ were dashed when when he was crucified. Though their hopes were dashed as far as their hope in Jesus as the Christ they still remained. we notice devoted to the Lord they were and we see that they, these women were, were courageous while the, all the apostles are missing these women followed they continued to follow wherever the body of Jesus went they followed to see where the body was laid disciples were hiding in the upper room probably at this time but these women disciples were following Jesus. Still, be albeit just his body. Because they wanted to honor Jesus, they well they wanted to show their love for Jesus. We see that reflected in what they did. Verse fifty five to verse fifty six. The remaining part of verse fifty five to fifty six, they followed Jesus. They followed Joseph to see where Jesus would be buried. Uh, and, if, and it seems from the wording here that uh, they did not actually interact with Joseph and, and Nicodemus. That they somehow just kind of, uh, maybe because Joseph and Nicodemus were not very well known to them, they were, well, they were council members, so everybody knew that they were. And the women were probably not sure because they were council members whether they were friend or foe. But then, so they simply followed and observed. They were like, uh, they just kind of, they observed, they watched. And they saw how Jesus' body was buried in a tomb nearby, in Joseph's tomb. And then we learned that they, Basically, once they saw where Jesus' body was, was buried, they returned to where they were staying in order to prepare spices and, and perfumes so that they could then anoint Jesus' body as well. They probably didn't see Nicodemus anoint, uh, having anointed uh, Jesus' body. Maybe they did, but they still wanted to themselves anoint Jesus' body out of love and devotion for Jesus. They wanted to honor the Lord by preparing his body for burial. Of course, uh, by the time that Jesus' body was laid in the tomb, there was no more time, and the Sabbath was approaching. And so they, they basically made plans to, to go home. They didn't, of course, they didn't even bring spices with them, so they, they weren't aware. So they had to go back home. Uh, they couldn't do any work on Sabbath. They would either have to work quickly at home before the Sabbath, and then uh, after, when the Sabbath ends on that, the next evening, they could prepare before the, 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 morning, before the Sunday morning uh, to go and anoint Jesus' body. As we consider the activity of these women, we kind of, we kind of conclude, can make similar uh, conclusions, similar deducements out of these things. First of all, these women are, we learn, are basically they're courageous in their devotion to the Lord. We see that. They're courageous in their devotion to the Lord. They're willing to take a risk. Jesus had been executed by Rome at the order of Pontius Pilate, the governor of this, of this region, at the request of the religious leaders, the council members. These were probably the most powerful enemies that you could make in Jerusalem, and nevertheless, these women courageously wanted to continue to follow Jesus' body so that they could prepare him for burial or anoint his body. Who was to say that the religious leaders wouldn't have couldn't have turned against anyone who was following Jesus and arrest them as well? And that's why the disciples, the twelve disciples, the eleven disciples were hiding. And we see then, or we're encouraged to to see from these ladies' example, that Jesus is worth the risk. He's worth the sacrifice, but Jesus is also worth the risk for those who follow Jesus. Whereas the apostles were nowhere to see, these women followed the body of Jesus as it was taken down from the cross, brought to the tomb. We see that even in his death, they were made plans to honor Jesus, to put him first, wanting to anoint his body with, with, the, with the perfumes and spices and he was worth the risk he was worth the following Is following Jesus worth the risk second the women's uh, we draw out that the women's intent to return with spices to anoint Jesus' body also indicate to us just like Joseph's activities that from common sense, Jesus is dead. He is dead. They're going to anoint his body with spices. They're going to cover with spices so that he can be, to be buried. Even for these women who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, they'd heard him even talk about, uh, probably even talk about, he, how, uh, about eternal life and things like that and about resurrection. But they had no expectation that he was going to rise from the dead. They were simply going to bury him as well. Although the women also did not expect Jesus' resurrection, their devotion to the Lord in the face of apparent defeat is an encouragement for us. It's an encouragement for you and me to always seek to honor the Lord, whatever the circumstances may be, to honor the Lord, to follow the Lord, to, 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 uh, to seek to, to glorify the Lord in our circumstances, when they're, whether they're good, whether they're bad, when it's safe and when it's dangerous even. To always seek to honor Jesus to glorify Jesus, these women did that, and they're, I think they 're they're, they're an example to us today. Well, we hopefully we 've learned and just be encouraged by the activities of these two groups the these unexpected groups, uh, a group of religious leaders who otherwise would have been enemies. We, we see a group of women who are in contrast to the 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 apostles themselves, these are involved in the burial of Jesus, the, And the actions of both the religious leaders as well as the women basically serve to corroborate the death of Jesus Christ. Two, basically We find here two separate witnesses, through their actions, attest that he is dead. The Christ is dead,. He did die. They're burying him. It is a historical fact that Jesus died on the cross. Now the question for everyone who accepts the fact of his death—and by the way, many, most, non, even non-Christian scholars are going to accept the fact that Jesus of Nazareth did die. Okay, it's, it's just there's too many, too many witnesses outside of the scriptures alone attest to it. The question is, why did he die? Why did he die? Did he die because he was a criminal who deserved punishment for his sins? Or did he die as a casualty of his enemy's scheme? Or did he die as the Christ who came to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many? What does Scripture say? What does Paul say? We've already remembered. For, we've already learned from 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three to four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. Jesus died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and the evidence of that is that He was buried. In fact, is, and that should cause us to now ask ourselves, what do I believe about this criminal? Casualty or the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. When you look at his life, you see the fulfillment of the scriptures, you see the the consistency of what he taught, the promises of the kingdom. It all points to, not to mention the resurrection and his miracles, it all points to the fact that Jesus is the Christ who did come to die. And he did die for our sins. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I invite you to believe in Jesus Christ today. Put your faith in him who died in your place. His death is a substitutionary atonement. He died in place of you. Paid the penalty for your sins. So that you who trust in Jesus might be forgiven. Might be reconciled to God, our creator. The maker of all heaven and earth you can believe in him today. And I hope for those of us who have already, those of us who have already, already have believed this gospel truth, the question for us is, is then how does this truth, the Christ's death, affect your lives? It is a certainty. Yes, there may be times of doubt, but hopefully you, and we will be, affirm ourselves with what the gospel says, with the, what the scriptures say, and it is a certainty that Christ died. You can't get around this circle of doubt. That's really the best thing. When you, when you have doubt, just go back to the cross. And ask you, did that really happen? The world says it happened. Now, the question for us is just to remind ourselves, why did he die then? He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And that oftentimes, will, as we come back to cross, we come back to, we come back to Jesus, we, we turn our eyes back to him, we follow him. We, and when we understand that, we will... We'll answer the call of Jesus again, renew our commitment to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, and like these women. Jesus is worth the sacrifice and the risk to follow and honor him. What sacrifices, what risks will you make as you follow Jesus? How does Christ's death transform your life?